Well, you know, I'm confident uh, when I say that never in my lifetime, and I think I'm, I'm correct in saying never in any of our lifetimes, has our nation ever been as divided as we are right now. I'm confident that is a true statement. Um, We've been isolated in a number of different ways. We've been separated from one another by an an invisible enemy, uh, by this virus which has caused us to sort of cloister over so many weeks, a hundred days almost, of stay-home orders in most of the nation. Uh, where we had to um, no longer go to work, no longer go to parks, no longer go to church in so many cases, and literally we were driven away from one another, even from our loved ones in a lot of cases. One of the great tragedies of uh, of this COVID virus has been that so many people who have been sick and in the hospital, um, even dying in the hospital, have had to endure that without their family uh, at hand, uh, close by, and, and loving and supporting them. Uh, funerals, when people have passed away, they've, they've not been able to have funerals or have very limited attendance at funerals. Weddings are canceled, graduations have been canceled, you know, all these things have been going on. One of the, one of the most uh, tragic things, I think, or pictures of what this has done to families is when you see, or maybe you haven't seen it, you've done it where you have seen families visiting their loved ones in nursing homes and they can't go in. You know, they're, they're visiting by Zoom or FaceTime or outside of a window and sort of, you know, touching the glass. But what's happened is this virus has, has done this. It's like somebody dropped uh, something in a, in a pool of water and we all sort of separated like the rings would go out in a pool of water. But it's not just the virus that's got us separated. It's also the temperature of our political debate lately. I don't think in my lifetime, now maybe there's some time in our nation's history that it's been worse than it is now, but in my lifetime, I don't think I've ever seen a time when there was such bitterness and vitriol and division amongst the people with regard to politics. I mean, it's conservatives versus the progressives and the, and the liberals versus the conservatives and I'm for this and I'm for that. But there's no more, it's almost as if there's no more reasoned and um, uh, uh, debate, but it's just this anger where we're driven apart from one another. And not only in the last few weeks has it become uh, just an issue of politics, but now, as many of you are aware, our nation is separated over issues of race. Over the last few weeks, uh, as we've talked about uh, briefly in the past, I'll be talking about it in weeks coming up, but the nation is divided now over issues of race where some people from their perspective see very clear and obvious systemic racism that must be dealt with culturally, while other people just as passionate don't see systemic racism, but they see racism by individuals that is not supported in the system. Very, very strong views on both sides of that debate. The fact is, whether it's the virus or politics or, or race issues, we have been driven apart from one another. And it's been a tough season. I mean, all of you would agree with that. It's been a, it's been a difficult season for our, our country, for our communities. And by the way, I should say that churches have not been spared from the difficulties of this season. 
churches have been limited in our abilities, you know, to come together. We're on our fifth week now back together, but we were 11 weeks without gathering as a church family. I have a friend of mine uh, who pastors in another city who are now, I think he's now at like 16 weeks without having church services and had planned to regather today, but because of some issues had to cancel that. And so now they're going to be 17 weeks, 20 weeks, 24 weeks, 36 weeks without gathering as a church. It's very, very difficult on the church. Some churches have closed as a result of it. So churches have endured a difficult time as well. And not only churches in the nation, but families. You know, I'm aware that some families are fractured. And not having anything to do with the things that I'm discussing has nothing to do with the virus or politics or race or anything else. It's just broken families. But here's the thing. Whether it's a family that's broken or a community that's separated or a church that's divided or the nation that's divided, when we scatter, when we begin to be separated... It can seem as if coming back together, uh, healing the breach, um, reconciling the relationships, um, coming back from our separation can seem so difficult. In fact, it can feel absolutely impossible. None of which, by the way, is good news. All of that is bad news. But there is some good news, amen? Hey, if you came to church today to get some good news, would you say amen? Some of you are like, well, get to it. What is the good news? Well, here's the good news. Let me say it to you in a sentence, okay? The good news is that our God, in a season of separation and division, our God is a gatherer. Our God is a God whose nature is to bring us, to call us to himself, and to bring us together. Now, let me ask you a question. When you think of a gatherer, what do you think of? What image comes to mind when you think of a gatherer? For me, I think of, and I think probably a lot of you do as well, I think of a shepherd. You know, a shepherd is one who is constantly about the business of gathering his sheep. As he tends his flock, he's gathering them in, he's caring for them, he's providing for their needs, he's guarding them against danger. The shepherd is a gatherer. And interestingly, when you read in the scriptures the ways in which God relates to his children, that relationship is most often illustrated by the sheep and shepherd metaphor. I think more than any other word picture that the Bible uses to tell us how God relates to us, it uses this word picture of the sheep uh, being uh, gathered by their shepherd. Over and over again, the Bible says this. Consider Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 11, which says, He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. And then in the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Again, he uses this picture. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Over and over, I could give you verse after verse after verse which says God is a gatherer. He's a shepherd. But most famously, I'm certain the verse that we would most often think of 
uh, that pictures God as a shepherd is Psalm 23 in verse 1, which says, will you say that loud with me? You know it, right? The Lord is my, say it, he's my, he's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. In his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, Philip Keller writes that when a man or a woman understands truly that the Lord is my shepherd, then they will realize the profound yet practical relationship between a person and his maker. This reality, the reality that the Lord is my shepherd, means that a lump of common clay is linked to divine destiny, that a mere mortal has become the cherished object of divine diligence. I love that. That God has taken into his care, under his diligent care, the mere mortal souls of men and women. The Lord, the God Almighty, the Creator, the Majestic One, the Maker of the heavens and the earth, he is my shepherd. And for that reason, Jesus constantly is gathering us. He's constantly tending to us. He is he who gathers. Now, we probably should acknowledge something at this point before we get into the text in Hebrews, and it's to say that if it is true that God is he who gathers, that he's constantly gathering us like a shepherd, then we must at the same time confess our tendency to wander right? If God is constantly having to gather me in, then it must be true that I have an inclination to wander away. There must be something about us that tends to scatter or to drift away or to pull away from him. And so, because we are those scatterers or those drifters, he must continuously be gathering us. And when he does it, to be the one that gathers is an expression of God's love. Because why else would God gather us if he doesn't love us? I mean, think about it. All the way back in the, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were living in the perfection of the Garden of Eden, and they had been given such liberty with one prohibition, don't eat of the fruit of the, true, uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet they did. And what happened because of their sin and disobedience and rebellion, what did Adam and Eve do? They scattered, right? I mean, pardon the illustration, but like a roach, when the light comes on, they just scattered, not only away from God, but away from each other. They were hiding amongst the trees, pointing fingers of blame at one another, trembling in the presence of God. And what could God have done? He could have left them in their sin. He could have, he could have done nothing. He could have washed his hands and been done with the whole human race. But because he loved them, he came into the garden and he gathered them back to himself. Adam, where are you? Come to me, son. Come, Eve, what have you done? And he forgave their sin and he covered their nakedness and their sin. Why? Because he loved them. He gathered them back to himself. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 36, the Bible says that Jesus looked upon the multitudes and had compassion on them. He loved them. Why? Because the verse says he saw them as sheep who were scattered and had no shepherd. And in Isaiah chapter number 1 and verse 18, seeing the lives of his people stained with sin, God said, come, gather to me. Come unto me, let us reason together, says the Lord. The fact is God gathers us. He is the great shepherd. He is the great gatherer because of his great love 
for us. And so, beginning today and for several weeks, we're going to be talking about this character of God as the gatherer, this nature of God to gather us in. And we'll consider how it is that God gathers us and why God gathers us and what his purposes are in gathering us to himself. Today, we're in Hebrews chapter number 10, where we're going to be beginning by thinking about how that God gathers us for worship. God gathers us into his presence to be worshipers. Now, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse number 19. So you've got your Bibles open there. I want you to follow along with me, if you will, as I read. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Here's what the Bible says. Having, therefore, now by the way, stop right there. Take your pen, if you're a note taker, underline or circle the word therefore. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Therefore. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke or to stir up unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And we'll stop reading right there. Now, I recognize that in jumping into the middle of Hebrews chapter 10, I've just sort of taken and landed with you in the middle of a passage without really giving you any insight into what's going on in that passage. And this is the reason I asked you to mark the word or underline the word, therefore. How many times have I told you over the years, what do you do when you're reading the biblical text and you find the word, therefore, you always look and see what it's there for, right? So the word therefore is our prompt to consider the text in light of its context. What is it that is being spoken about in all of Hebrews chapter number 10? And the answer to that question is that the passage is teaching us about worship. In fact, go back to chapter 10 and verse number 2. At the very beginning of the chapter, in verse number two, the writer begins talking about worshipers. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers once purged. The passage is talking about the privilege of worship. And in Hebrews chapter number 10, the writer is drawing for us the differences between and the similarities between worship under the old covenant and worship under the new covenant, or worship under the first covenant and worship under the second covenant. Look at chapter 10 and verse number 9, where you'll see this definition of these two covenants. Verse number 9 says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He, Jesus, is taking away the first that he might establish the second. So he's talking about worship under the first covenant and worship under the second covenant covenant. Now, when we talk about the old covenant, first covenant, versus the new covenant, 
or the second covenant, we're talking about what it was like to worship God under the Old Testament law, the Jewish law, and the new covenant being what it is now like to worship Jesus, that we're no longer under the law, but we're now under grace since Jesus came. And the point of chapter 10 is to say to us, look, God gathers us for worship and he wants us to understand the difference and the similarities between those two covenants. So what does the text teach us? Well, let's work through it for just a couple of minutes. I hope you'll take some notes as we go. First of all, go back up to verse number one and notice that under the old covenant, worshipers gathered, assembled regularly for worship. Look at it, chapter 10 and verse number one. So the Bible says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they, the worshipers, offered year by year continually. There you have the prescribed regularity of worship gatherings. Under the old covenant, there was a prescribed regularity with which worshipers were commanded to gather for the purpose of giving God worship. Now, in truth, these gatherings happened at different intervals. For example, they worshiped every Sabbath, every Shabbat or Sabbath, they worshiped as a family and as a community. And then they would worship at various feasts which occurred throughout the year. What's in view in chapter number 10 is the gathering of the Day of Atonement, that holiest day on the Jewish calendar, where every year on the same day, on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, they would gather for worship and sacrifices would be offered. All right? So under the Old Covenant, they gathered regularly for worship. The second thing that this chapter tells us is that when they gathered, they made offerings to God, animal sacrifices. Look at it, verse number four. Well, verse one talks about the sacrifices they made. Verse four tells us what the sacrifices were. Verse four says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. So under the old covenant, when you came to worship, uh, you would bring a sacrifice. Now, sometimes it might be a turtle dove or a pigeon. In this case, it was a bull or a goat. Now, by the way, stop and look up here at me and listen carefully. Are you glad there are some differences in new covenant worship and old covenant worship? If you are, say amen. <laughs> so nobody brought a lamb with you to sacrifice today, did you? You didn't, you didn't pass by a little you know, pen outside the front door where you could purchase your, your, your young calf to have its throat slit and its blood shed and sprinkled upon an altar and its carcass burned on fire, right? That's what they did in that covenant. We don't do that today. I'm glad there are differences now. But in the old covenant, that's what they would do. They would bring a sacrifice. Then verse 11 tells us that when they would bring that sacrifice, they were limited, the worshipers were limited in their approach to God. That is, they could only go so far and they needed a priest to mediate for them in this old covenant worship. The priests would offer their sacrifice for them. They weren't allowed to offer it themselves. Chapter 10, verse 11, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. So worship under the old covenant involved God's people gathering together on regular intervals, bringing their sacrifices, the priests offering those sacrifices. Now here's the question. Here's the question. Under the old covenant was worship a corporate gathered 
exercise or experience? Or was it an individual or private experience? Think about it. Based on everything we've read, under the old covenant, did you worship on your own, alone, or did you gather to worship? Well, I think the text is pretty clear. Now let's move to the new covenant. The new covenant has a lot of differences, thankfully. Look at what the Bible says in verse number four, and you'll be, you'll be glad for God's initiative uh, in solving this problem for us. Verse number four says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So here's the first thing you learn about the new covenant in Hebrews 10. It is that the new covenant is God's solution to the weakness of the old covenant. Because the old covenant could never fully make us right with God. The blood of a bull, the blood of a goat or a turtle dove or any other sacrifice has not the power to forgive my sins. It's weak. That's the reason verse number one says it's just a shadow of the better covenant that was to come. So God solved the weakness of the old covenant by establishing the new covenant. And how did he do it? Verse number five tells us that he did it by preparing for Jesus a body, a human body. Verse number five, uh, wherefore when he, Jesus, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body you have prepared for me. Verse 6, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, God, you have no pleasure, but I have come uh, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So God saw the problem of the old covenant. It was weak. It could not save us. So he created a body for Jesus. Now, the body that was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, The body that was the human body of Jesus Christ, it says that God prepared this body for Jesus. And then the passage goes on to say that in the new covenant, this body of Jesus was sacrificed in the same way that bulls and goats had been sacrificed in the old covenant. Now the body of Jesus was sacrificed under the new covenant. Look at it, verse number 10. By the which will, verse number nine says, I've come to do thy will, O God, verse 10. By the which will, that is by God's will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. All right, are you with me? So under the new covenant, God creates a body or provides a body for Jesus, conceived in the womb of Mary. Christ dwells in this body incarnate, God incarnate. That body then is offered for us, bloodied and broken, nailed to a cross and offered for us. It is, it is the sufficient offering for our salvation under the new covenant, which could never have been provided for us under the old covenant with the sacrifices of bulls or of goats. In fact, this is exactly what verse number 12 says when it tells us that his sacrifice was sufficient. Verse 12 says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for all sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, let me make sure you're listening. If you're glad for the sacrifice of Jesus, shout amen. Amen. Praise God, right? We're under the new covenant. We worship God, not with the blood of bulls or goats, but because of Jesus who came, lived perfectly, died in our place, and now we have been saved. Now, here's one very important distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. It is that in the new covenant, the worshiper, that's us, 
The worshiper now has direct and complete access to God himself. Look where the Bible tells us this in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, that is, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh. Now, let me stop and make sure all of you understand this, because I don't want anybody to read past that and go, I don't know what he's talking about. When he says we can boldly, everybody say boldly, we can boldly, it means with confidence, without shrinking back, we can confidently come into the holiest. What is the holiest? Remember, he's talking about the old and the new covenants. And under the old covenant, there was a tabernacle and a temple. And to meet with God, you had to come to the temple. And in the temple, there was a room called the holiest of holies or the holy of holies or the holiest of all. This was the room where God in his presence abode, where God met with his people. And dividing that room from the other parts of the temple was a huge veil, a heavy curtain. And nobody could go beyond that curtain except the high priest once a year on the day of atonement. What he says is that under the old covenant, there was a place where God was. Worshippers came to worship him, but they could only go so far. They could never go beyond the veil. So God created a new covenant, gave a body for Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and through his death on the cross, now the veil is gone. His body has become the veil, and we trust through his shed blood, his broken body, that we now have access directly to God Almighty. Somebody I ought to say, amen, praise God for that. It's different under the new covenant because we can come directly into the presence of God. So do you see the difference? Worshippers under the old covenant come through the blood of a sacrifice of a bull or a lamb as close as they can, and then a priest must mediate. It could never truly forgive them. So God creates a new covenant where now anyone can come through Christ right into the presence of God. Here's the question. It's the same question I asked you about the old covenant. Is worship under the new covenant a gathering or is it a personal and private experience? Now think about your answer before you answer. Is worship under the new covenant a corporate, assembled, gathered event or is it something that we do on our own. Well, before you answer, let me ask you to let the text speak to it. So again, if you have a pen, let me challenge you to look at verse 20, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24. And notice that in those four verses, you will find the collective word us. He has consecrated for us, verse 20. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. Also, notice uh, in verse number 21, this reference to the house of God. In the new covenant, we have a high priest, Jesus, over the house of God. The family of God is the way that we would say it. It's the collective family of God. Verse 22 uses the word our twice. Let's draw near with a full heart of, a true heart of uh, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed. 
Verses 24 and 25 remind us to think of one another as we come to worship. And verse 25 says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. Let me ask you the question again. Under the new covenant, is worship primarily a gathered event or a personal experience? And here's the answer to the question. That under either the old or the new covenant, it was possible, and it remains possible today, for a person to worship God individually, personally, in private devotion. Not only is it possible, it is what we should do. It is a spiritual discipline that we ought to engage in. We ought to be private, personal worshipers. But the text is telling us that primarily speaking, worship is not an individual privatized event. It is a gathered event. It is the assembly of God's people coming together to worship. In fact, the Bible says, doesn't it, in Matthew chapter number 18, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst among them. Let me tell you what attracts the presence of God in worship. It is not the individual sitting on the mountaintop looking over the grand view, having his quiet time. It is the gathering of God's people that attracts his presence for the purpose of worship. And by the way, if that surprises you, it shouldn't. Because from Genesis to Revelation, this is the the practice of the entire created order. The Bible says that creation is a symphony, an assembled symphony of praise to God. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. Job tells us that the stars sang at their creation. Isaiah says that the trees of the field clap their hands in praise to God, that the calves kick up their heels in praise to God, and that the rocks cry out in praise to God. All of creation gathers in one voice, praising God. Don't be surprised that it's this way under the new covenant as well. It's also this way in the angelic hosts. Here's a challenge for you. Now, you may find it. I've never found it. I'm not saying it's not there. But I would challenge you to go through the scriptures and find an example of one angel worshiping God alone. I've never found it. The angels are a gathering, an assembly of angels worshiping God together. I mean, in Luke chapter number two, at the birth of Jesus, right? The angel Gabriel alone came and made the announcement about the birth of the Messiah. And before the worship began, who assembled? A multitude of the heavenly host, worshiping and praising God. Hey, the Bible says in Revelation that who, how will the angels worship God in heaven? How many are there? One? No. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The angels worship God assembled. And the same is true in Israel. In in the Old Covenant, as I've been talking about, the tribes of Israel go up to Jerusalem together. Psalm 122 does not say, I was glad when I went up to the house of God by myself. Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord together. Come, let's go together and worship the Lord. Here's my point. It is that while we can and should worship God individually, it is the nature of God that he gathers us 
for worship, and worship in Scripture is primarily an assembled and a gathered event. Now, I want to talk about this for a couple of minutes just to kind of draw from the text what are some practical lessons in in what it means to be an assembly of worshipers, okay? So remember, it is God's nature to gather us because he loves us. It is our tendency to scatter and separate and and to uh, drift. So God's constantly gathering us. It's his nature as a shepherd. He gathers us for a lot of reasons, which we'll be discussing, but one reason is that he gathers us for worship. So write this down. According to this passage, what happens when we gather for worship? What happens when the church assembles for worship? We're going to see this in verses 22 and 23. Look at it. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now, let me tell you what I know is your tendency to do, because it's mine as well. And this is driven not by a biblical mindset. If y'all are listening to me, shout amen. Don't miss it. So often, the way that we think is shaped by our Western view of the superiority and celebration of the individual. And yet, it's not the biblical view. When we read these verses, verses 22 and 23, we are tempted to think of them with a DIY sort of mindset, a do-it-yourself kind of mindset. So we read verses 22 and 23 to say, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil, uh, from an uh, evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we say, you draw near to God with a pure heart and a, your conscience sprinkled and your life washed. And I'll draw near to God. And as you draw near to God and I draw near to God, then we'll be near to one another. We sort of view it like this divine triangle, but we're individuals on that continuum. What the passage says is, let us draw to God together. Let us come before him as a gathering, as an assembly. When we do that as an assembly, what happens? Look at verse number 22. When we assemble, when we gather for worship, our convictions are deepened. When he says in verse 22, let us draw near to him with a true heart, the word means to have an undivided, genuine heart of worship, a genuine heart devoted to Christ. Here's what I want you to know. Your heart helps my heart. And when we draw together with a pure heart, I'm encouraged in my heart being undivided when I see your hearts undivided. And this is the reason we need one another. He says, let us draw together with a pure heart and full assurance of our faith. That's that deepening of conviction. Full assurance is our full conviction, our deep assurance of the person and the work and the glories of Jesus. That happens collectively, church. It happens when we assemble, when we gather for worship. Our convictions are deepened. Here's the second thing that happens, verse 22. Our holiness is deepened. Now, you don't hear a lot about holiness in these days, but I want you to know God is interested in the holiness of his church. And so he says in verse number 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. It speaks to our hearts being pure before God, being cleansed before God. And how are they sprinkled? How are they cleansed? As we confess our sins, there is cleansing and fellowship. Our conscience is sprinkled. 
And then he goes on in verse 22 to say, and our bodies washed with pure water. The implication is that we are living a life that is becoming more and more and more clean. Here's the fact. When God's people gather for worship, our confessions happen. This is where we mostly confess our sins. It is where we come before God in worship. It is where we are cleansed in the way that we live. The person who gathers for worship is the person who most often is going to be finding cleansing in their lives and holiness. And then verse 23 would teach us that our grip is strengthened. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. The word means exactly what it sounds like. It means to grip, to to not let go. You ever had your kids when they were little, maybe they still are, and you've got your hands full of things, and they're on your back, and they've got their arms around your neck, and their legs around your waist, and you're going, hang on, baby, just hang on tight, don't let go. What happens when God's people gather for worship? Our grip on Christ. Now, he's holding on to us, but our grip on Christ, our grip on, uh, in our faith in Christ is strengthened as we gather together. And you, it's a valid question to say, but why do I have to gather for those things to happen? Can't my convictions deepen and my life become more holy and my grip on the faith, can all that be stronger just if I worship God privately? Well, the simple answer is no, no. Because when the church gathers, those things are strengthened through the the, the presence of Jesus where two or three are gathered, I am there in the midst of them, his active presence among us. By the proclamation of God's word, you can read the Bible on your own, so can I, but you need preaching. Somebody say amen right there, make your preacher feel good. (laughs) You need preaching. I need preaching. You say, I don't need you. I don't need you to preach to me. I don't need anybody to preach to me. I can read it on my own. Well, then why did God give Ephesians 4 to the church, pastors, teachers, prophets, to equip the saints? It happens here because this is where the proclamation of the word happens. It happens here because we assemble with one another to worship. There's something profoundly powerful that happens when God's people gather and join as one voice singing praise to Christ as we've been doing here this morning. It happens because there's a fellowship here. This is what verses 24 and 25 talk about. There's a fellowship and an encouragement uh, that happens when the church gathers together. Now I would just say to you, what? incredible grace. Amen? What amazing grace that God would institute a new covenant through the blood of his son Jesus, cleanse us from our sins, put us in the church, and call us together, and while we're together, strengthen our grip, deepen our faith, make us more holy as we assemble together with his people. And one would think, wouldn't you, that that would be enough. Those things would be reason enough that every single Christian would always long for the worshiping assembly of the church. And yet it's not the case. It's just not always the case. Paul deals in this passage, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but Paul deals in this passage with the sad neglect of the worship gathering. The sad neglect of the worship gathering. It is just that. It is the neglect. Verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And notice these words. Even in the days in which the book of Hebrews was written. As the manner of some is. Even in this day. Not just modern 
Christianity. We sometimes think we got all the problems and they had it right in the first century. No, even in those days, there were some who were neglecting gathering together as the church. The word, uh, when, he, when he says to us, do not forsake the assembling, it means don't leave it off. Don't forget it. Don't leave it behind. The command is simple. Don't neglect assembling with the church to worship. And yet there is a sad neglect of it. There was in Paul's day and there is in ours. And I have to say, even before the pandemic began, I mean, you know, you set aside the very real issues that our world has been dealing with with the pandemic, but even before that, back forever, really, in the days just prior to, you know, in the last few years, prior to this pandemic, church attendance among evangelical Christians, people who claim to be born-again evangelicals, church attendance had fallen on hard times. I mean, Really? The average born-again evangelical, I'm not talking about somebody who's not a believer, the person who says, I am born again, going to heaven, an evangelical concerned about the work of the gospel in the world, on average, that person goes to church pre-pandemic less than 50% of the time. They assemble for worship less than half of the times when the church actually gathers. And the reason for such neglect of the worship gathering, most often given when asked, why do you attend as frequently or as infrequently as you do? This is true in the statistics and the studies and as well as my own experience. The the reason that people most often give is life is so busy. We're just busy people. We live in a busy time. There's a lot of things going on. There's so many demands on my calendar and on my time. I'm busy, busy, busy. And so what happens is, In such a world, attendance at the worship service now becomes one thing that I need to do in a long list of things that I need to do. And suddenly, worship of Almighty God in the new covenant secured by the blood of Jesus is competing with things like sports and Laundry and hiking and shopping and sleeping. And Paul says this is the sad neglect of this great privilege of worship that God has given us. Suddenly we're competing and we're going, do do I have time? Do I really want to make time for the gathering of God's people and worship under this new covenant? Is that something that I want to fit into my schedule. By the way, in such a thinking, it also becomes a value proposition. So suddenly I am beginning to decide what reward do I get? What's the value to my life for for the expenditure of my time and energy of participating? And so it becomes a value proposition. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, writes these words It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of the Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. Bonhoeffer was killed, executed by hanging in a Nazi concentration camp mere days before that concentration camp was liberated, as you know. 
He said, the privilege that we have to gather under the new covenant to worship our God together is a gift God has given us. And never forget, and he knew from experience, it can be taken from us in a moment. And we've experienced that, haven't we? In our own lives due to COVID. We've experienced. There came a time back in uh, early March, late February, where the government said, stop, no more gatherings. You cannot gather for church. And suddenly, what had been so freely available to us for our entire lives, suddenly we were told, do not gather. And it was taken. And one would hope, wouldn't you, that the, that the taste of that loss, the temporary loss of that ability, that freedom being taken away would cause every one of God's children across the world to go, I'll never take it for granted again. I'll cherish it now. I'll cherish the gathering more than I ever have because I've tasted what it feels like to lose it. And while we would hope that that's the case, I fear that it's not the case in everyone's life. That sadly, Rather than cherishing it all the more, some have slipped into a very lackadaisical, even lazy view of the gathering. Now, if y'all still love your pastor, say amen. amen. Some of y'all thinking, man, those other two guys preached the last two weeks. I like them better. The Bible says that God assembles us for the purpose of worship, and there's amazing grace that happens when we gather. And so we must hear his command to not neglect that privilege. So can I just ask you a question before I move to close? Are you one who has historically, even today, even if you're sitting here, has neglected this great grace privilege of the assembly of God's people for worship? Either by not assembling very frequently, or even in your assembly, not worshiping very fully? That's a good question for all of us in this room. It's a good question for those of you watching at home as well and for everyone on our Merriman campus. One last thing, and I see the time. I know, I've got to finish. But I hadn't preached in two weeks, so I'm catching up. So deal with it, all right? No, I'm done, seriously. Write this last thing down. I want you to notice in this passage how our worship gathering pays it forward. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You, you know when we talk about paying something forward, it is to say that when we receive something freely, we want to then give that away, right? We want to pay it forward or pass it on to someone else. And so the passage tells us in verses 24 and 25 that this is what happens. This paying it forward is what happens when we gather for worship freely, because when we gather, verse 24 and 25 says that we are stirred up. King James says we are provoked. We are stirred up to love and to good works. So here's the thing. When we gather for worship, then there's something within us that is empowered, that is stirred up, so that we now are able to go out of here and love others in the name of Jesus and perform good works in the name of Jesus. Well, where are we going to love and do those good works. For the most part, not in the church. For the most part, we're going to do them out there in the community. So we gather here, we receive his grace, and then we pay that grace forward as we go out and, and live out these good works and loving others. 
In other words, our participation here enables our productive lives for his glory out there. It's sort of like the home, you know? When, when you go to work in the morning and you expend all of your energy and you give your, your best hours to that company and you're, you know, you're a butcher baker, candlestick maker, whatever you're doing, and you're just kind of pouring your life out, God intended your home to be a place of respite. God intended your home to be a place where at the end of your day, you can come home and you're going to get rest and you're going to get love and you're going to get food and nutrition and energy and then the sun's going to rise tomorrow and you're going to go do it again. And at the end of that next day, you'll come back home and you're going to start taking in again so that the next day you can go out and do it again. And the point is, you can't keep giving out if you don't come home and find that rest. Well, God intended the church to function similarly. That God wants us pouring our lives out in our community. He wants us loving in the name of Jesus. He wants us living on purpose. But we have to come here in order to find that strength, get that encouragement, have that worship, move about one another in his presence, be fed, be instructed, and then go back out and give our lives away again. I mean, think about it. What is the opposite of gather? If this is our gathering, what is the opposite of gather? It's to scatter, right? Or to disperse. So don't think of it as a, as a disorderly or a negative scattering. Think about it as a dispersing. When we say amen in a few minutes and we're dismissed, we will go out these doors, we will disperse into our community. And what are we to do as we disperse? We're to go in Jesus' name. Go be Jesus to our world. Go love people in Christ's name. Go share the gospel. Go do good works in his name. That's what we disperse to do. We must gather here in order to have what we need to go do that. Are you with me? So here's what I would say to you. That gathering here is to dispersing as inhaling is to exhaling. If I exhale without quickly inhaling, if I go, (sighs) and if I don't inhale soon, I will die. (gasps) Because once I exhale, I'm dead if I don't inhale. And when you go out of here today, you are the exhaling of the body of Christ. And you go out into this world and you exhale the grace of Jesus everywhere you go. And you need to inhale again. If you're going to be able to be effective out there, you need to inhale so that we can go do it again the following week. And this is how we pay it forward. We gather here and inhale so that we can go out and exhale. And so I would just close by saying to you very, very honestly and really without any ambiguity, that if you don't need the worship gathering, if you don't need the inhaling, then you cannot be exhaling out there. In other words, if you don't need the worship gathering, if you can take it or leave it, you're okay with once every few weeks, few months, once every few months, whatever. If you don't need regular inhaling in worship, It is not unlikely, it is impossible that you are living the life productively for Jesus in this world that he wants you to live. It's impossible. And so my challenge to you is understand 
that we live in a new covenant under the grace of God through the blood of Jesus. We have direct access to God and we can worship him on our own, but we cannot fulfill his view of worship without gathering.